0: Fine. They perfectly fine. Fine. Okay, fine.
1: Fine. 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 You're listening to Everything is Fine in Southwest Washington, a political podcast where we recognize that everything is not at all fine and discuss what we can do about it. I'm Carissa. And I'm Sydney. Welcome to the show, Rebecca Small, who is a senior policy analyst and neighborhood liaison for the city of Vancouver. Rebecca has played an essential role in the coordination and construction of the city's climate action framework. The city council just approved a resolution to adopt this climate action framework on December 5th, and it is one of, if not the most ambitious climate plans of its kind in the nation, rivaled only by the city of Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank
0: (laughs) you so much for having
1: me. Yeah, of course. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so our understanding of this amazing plan, we are so excited um, that we get to be part of this, live in the city and to have this government represent us. Um, See, this plan we know came from the community and you were the project lead coordinating this massive effort. Um, I know some of the groups involved, we have friends that are part of some of the groups that were involved, but we want to know more what did that process look like? And, you know, I think this means that the community has a say in how our government is run. And that's something that um, I think not a lot of community members realize that their voice can matter. And this is a shining example of how community voices can come together to do so much good. So what did that process look like? Well, I think the first thing that I
2: would want our listeners to know that before any of the planning on this framework even began. The voters of of Vancouver, um, they elected representatives for their city council that supported the values that, that started this whole process. So even before that whole, you know, the whole public outreach community engagement process for this started, just the mere act of voting for your elected officials, voting for officials and leaders that care about climate change and think that it is a priority for our city, for our region, and for our world, um, is I would say the biggest way that um, the people listening to your show have already weighed in on this process, whether they you know, directly interg- engage with me or sat in on a community roundtable group or anything like that, just casting your vote and putting the right kind of leadership in place that shares the values, that is willing to take the heat for something that's often very controversial. That is one of the biggest ways that we can all have a say in, you know, a plan like this going forward. But once we did have, um, once our, our city council, you know, we our city council directed staff to start working on this this project. Um, way back I think in 2020 and it was right after it was right after that that huge heat dome um, so maybe that was a coincidence maybe it wasn't but I think climate change was heavy in everyone's mind um, since since that initial direction uh, the city city staff have, um, we've had over 53 meetings with stakeholder groups and community groups and advocacy organizations. We've had a stakeholder advisory group that um, met with us seven times for some really in-depth discussions. They did a lot of work on their own time, you know putting together a list of actions um, that we thought would get us closer to our goals and you know just really doing that that fine grained work work you know just, Getting the wording right on every action, and you know, just just honing and crafting the the individual pieces of this framework. Um, so we had a really dedicated group of about, I think, thirty folks that just from groups across the city that really put a lot of time into it, and then we had a lot of people weigh in at the beginning of the. Of the beginning of the framework's development, that kind of set that high-level vision for us. So that was through um, that was through a survey that we conducted with the community. I think we had close to six hundred responses to that, which is great. And from that survey, what we heard from the people of Vancouver was that they wanted us to be ambitious with this with this framework. They wanted us to set our targets very high, and that this was a priority for them and. I think we acknowledge through the process that this is going to take time. It's going to take work. It's going to take. It's going to have expenses, and it's going to. It's going to force us to change, some of the the ways that we have always done things, Um, but that we were ready as a community to do that. So, we've had. So many conversations <laughs> over the last year that I've been with the city and then my colleague, Aaron Landy, who, um, who started this process and worked on it for almost a year before I joined the city's team. Um, so it's, it's really been a community effort in just setting the targets, setting the vision, and then putting all of those individual little pieces together to come up with our final framework.
1: Wow, quite an amazing feat. Um, so what would you say are like the first things Vancouver residents will see from this plan? The the first positive things they'll see from this plan. I mean, they're all positive, but.
0: Well, there's
2: a lot of things that um, that we're going to try to get moving on right away. So back in June, the city manager directed all city departments to make climate change a priority in their work. So while the plan was still, the framework was still being developed at that time, um, we were already trying to put the put the, th- put the, the works in motion um, so that as soon as this, this framework was adopted by council, we'd be able to hit the ground running. So I think a couple of exciting things that we, um, we want Vancouver residents to look forward to this year um, would be one, One project in particular that residents turned out to advocate for, in particular. Um, We know that extreme heat is probably going to be a regular part of our summers going forward. And one of our best ways to make sure that those heat events don't become, you know, don't turn into public health hazards where people's people's actual health and lives are at risk from those events is by making sure that we have a lot of cooling shade throughout the city, that we have a mature tree canopy um, throughout the city, that it's not concentrated in just a few neighborhoods, that wherever you live, wherever you work, should have access to a cooling tree canopy shade. So our, um, our urban forestry department it's going to be accelerating their tree planting program um, by direction of council, which was by direction of people that showed up to testify and wrote in letters to city council uh, to tell us to do that. <laughs> so we'll be, um, we'll be almost doubling the amount of, um, the amount of funding that we allocate towards tree planting and tree maintenance so that we can really front load our city's tree planting goals. You know, we can stretch this work out over the next 15 years, or we can try to plant as many trees as we can in the next, you know, in the next three to five years so that, you know, as our climate starts to change, as our temperatures start to rise in the summer, we have already prepared for that. And um, and so in a lot of neighborhoods, I think residents should look for, you know, Friends of Trees volunteers asking them if they would be willing to accept a tree on their, you know, on their planting strip. We'll be doing a lot more tree planting through the neighborhoods along busier streets that tend to collect a lot of heat. Um, so I think that's one of the exciting programs that we can look forward to. Um, we're also going to be launching a scaping program this year. So in a lot of that's through really the. Parks, um, Parks and Cultural Recreation, Parks, Recreation and Cultural Services Department. Um, They're going to be looking for parcels of land throughout the city. Some of these would just be in public parks that are, you know, just have open grass fields that we have to mow and fertilize every summer. And some of these would be, you know, just patches of land that are maybe paved right now um, or that are not being really used for not really being used for any ecological purpose. Um, they're going to be removing just that planted grass that really doesn't have much of an ecological value. And they're going to be replacing that with um, good composted soils and native plants, native vegetation, drought tolerant plantings. So it'll kind of serve two functions. It provides um, provides pollinator habitat. It's an education piece for the city. You know, people can see how beautiful using native plants and low water plants can be for, you know, in their own neighborhoods. But then it also takes land that isn't really performing. It's not really performing a function. If you think about land as having a function um, and turns it into something that is actively sequestering carbon and, you know, being a part of our local solution for climate change. One other thing. I don't know if I don't know if you will, you and your listeners will think it is exciting, but I think it's really exciting. We are revamping our wastewater treatment facility, and so all of the <laughs> uh, it it doesn't really rise to a lot, the top of a lot of people's lists. But um, our current wastewater treatment facility um, is going to be upgrading its equipment, and so instead of um, our facility releasing a lot of methane gas um, and just creating a lot of waste solids we're going to be we're we're going to be exploring different ways that we can use our local waste products and turn them into resources so can we reclaim that methane and use that as a power source to um, to power the wastewater treatment facility so that we're not using energy off the grid or using natural gas from, you know, from the local gas company. Um, And can we take, um, can we take waste products and can we use them for, you know, for any sort of, you know, for any sort of other purposeful function, like a fertilizer product or, you know, I think, I think energy and heat generation is probably the highest target for that, but, we are working on that project right now. They're doing kind of the really base level exploration, um, you know, and planning parts of that project. Uh, so that is that is a pretty big project that we're getting started on, and climate benefits are you know kind of one of the foundational pieces of that big project. So I
0: love it. I'm. You're talking to a couple of nerds. So I think we're both really excited about (laughs) wastewater. (laughs) Um, And that's also an example of something that, you know, when you talk about a city addressing climate change, a lot of people that are skeptical or don't think that addressing climate change is worth the investment. If We just told them we're revamping the way we manage our, you know, wastewater. That's very like, oh, well, they don't understand how it works now or what those changes could mean. So those are kind of all under the radar ways we can address it that aren't offensive to some people (laughs) like forcing them to drive an electric vehicle or something like that they don't think of wastewater as a a way that that can be achieved um let me see so one of the questions we had was uh, the top five to ten noticeable or tangible changes from the plan so you just Give us three really great examples of like the soonest kind of things, or things that are already starting. Are there other down the road, like the things, other any other things that you're really excited about? Oh my goodness,
2: so many! Um, but okay, I, will I say you. that. <laughs> so I will say that some of the biggest changes that the plan, the, the framework, kind of helps us to accomplish, are changes in how we build our neighborhoods and how we get around. So transportation is the, you know, it's it's the biggest, um, it's the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the city. And so, you know, we talked about as a lot as a city about what real tangible ways are that we can shift behavior and creating conditions where someone will either opt to walk or take an alternative mode that doesn't involve jumping in a car. And a lot of that is dependent on where people are trying to go and what options people have available to them um, to get there. So we really have a couple of key areas that we can try to influence. Um, And so one is just, you know, what sort of amenities do people have access to within a comfortable distance of where we live? If we have greater concentrations of people living in close proximity to the places they want to access, it's more likely that we'll have more... People citywide who have the option to select, you know, to you know, use their bike or to walk or hop on a bus to get to where they need to go. And then we really want to make sure that people have access to options for transportation. Are the roads, are the networks that people have to ride their bike, to walk, are they, you know, are they safe? Are they accessible? Are they, um, you know, are they direct? Do people feel comfortable? They're not just, you know, technically safe. But if you were out for a bike ride with your, you know, with your mother or with your child, would you feel safe and comfortable? So, what we're really going to be focusing on, um, and a lot of this will come through our transportation system plan and our comprehensive plan update, which are two huge plans that we're currently working on updating. Um, so, what we're really trying to change through those is that. You know, the design of the neighborhoods, how much do we concentrate amenities um, so that people are in close proximity to things they want to get to, and how safe and multimodal are the networks that people will use to get from A to B? So those are long term changes. They're not things that will happen overnight. Those are changes that will happen one building at a time, one street at a time. But what we're doing right now through these um, through these big city plan updates directed by the climate action framework is to lay the groundwork, put it in the, the rules of the city, so to speak, that, you know, that our neighborhoods will, you know, will keep We'll keep all of the, a lot of the good stuff close together, so it's easy for you to get to, and it will lay down the you know the design specifications for the streets, so that every time we build a street, every time we update a street, that you know those roadways, those sidewalks, those bike lanes or mobility lanes, however you want to call them, that they're safe and comfortable, and that they're getting us closer to becoming a city where people. Um, where people aren't dependent on a single occupancy vehicle to get what they need to do so those are kind of um, those are kind of the long term um, kind of features of the plan but in the long run that is going to help us make the biggest difference on climate change in our city even as we you know even as we add more people to the city and our population grows if we can, if we can grow the land use and transportation systems um, wisely, then even as we're adding people, we can still be reducing our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: One of the, We wanted to make sure people understood how life is going to be better as a result of this plan. And I think you just described, like, I, and then what is the timeline for this idyllic where your neighborhood has your grocery store, your pharmacy, maybe your workplace, your daycare center, all the things you might need to go to every day. What is the timeline? I know you said it's it's long-term, but how long before people see that type of change? And what other really positive things other than super clean air and walkability and healthier bodies? When you're trying to walk on the sidewalk <laughs> or
1: riding your bike or waiting for the bus, like you're not scorching in the heat. Yeah, while well you're... Trying to get where you need to go. That sounds well.
2: (laughs) Well, I would say you know some of these plans. um, Some of these plans for some of our earlier corridors are already underway, and I'd say that you know if you've been to if you've been to the downtown of the city, or if you've been on one of the streets where the Vine um, rapid bus. Tr- Bus rapid transit network runs. You've already seen some of the seeds of this, so it's not like it's a you know change that will start all of a sudden. It's kind of the gradual shift that you know that we have been seeing over time. But we're hoping to you know kind of change the change the zoning um, and change the design of our roadways so that you know we get toward we get to that goal faster and. I think I would say that part of the transition, you know, it's not the people that live in the city are not cut out from this process. Um this is still an open evolving um you know transition for the city and so there's, you know, every street that has a, you know, new streetscape plan coming for it. That's another opportunity for people to weigh in and say, you know, I'd like us to, you know, I would like the sidewalk area here to be even bigger and, or I want the bike lanes here to be protected. So every single, it's going to be one project at a time. Our climate action framework time horizon is 2040. That's our carbon neutrality goal. Um, But, you know, a transition for a city, this is long-term. And usually when we think you know, I come from a long-term planning background and that's usually like a 40 year time horizon. We're trying to accelerate that and, you know, really try to, really try to front load our progress on this so that, you know, by 2040, we look and feel like a different city. So, um, but again, it's, it's one street at a time, one building at a time. So the process can be slow, um, but the more that people in the city, you know, ask for that kind of change or express enthusiasm for, you know, being able to buy an affordable condo instead of a full, you know, single family house with a huge backyard, you know, all of these little, all of these little pieces of input, um, you know, kind of help keep us moving in the right direction
1: too.
0: There's just a couple things that I thought were really uh interesting and I'm wondering what kind of those timelines are and wanting just to highlight them again for our listeners because I think they'll benefit people in ways again that they don't realize it's addressing climate issues. Um, One of them was the local repair and reuse programs so that like repair shops for things so that we're not buying consuming with planned obsolescence constantly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and I don't think that has um we've
2: intentionally kept that very broad too. so I think you know we're I think some of the big you know the big ones that we think about are like major appliances and cars and you know things like that where we want to have a robust repair um community so that if something breaks or goes wrong, our first you know our first choice is to say, how can I? you know, <laughs> how can I fix this for $200 instead of buying a brand new one for $2,000? But I think another, you know, another part of that is also just trying to help foster a culture where we think about repair as an option. Yes. Um, I feel <laughs> like in our, you know, in our generation, we've, we've somewhat gotten away from the idea of mending clothes, for example. Um, you know, fast fashion is, you know, it's cheap, it's easy. You can, you know, clothes are made inexpensively. And so it's easy for people to think of something that rips or loses a button as, you know, just dead to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. And so, <laughs> but it, it, it has not always been, been that way and nor does it need to you know, nor do we need to continue with our current mindset. So it's you know kind of fostering some of that those community neighborhood level groups. You know, like a buy, trade, and sell platform, or you know, for neighborhood associations or local you know local communities. Can we have you know one meeting a quarter where you know we have a garment mending session, or can we have maker spaces that you know we can. We can host, um, you know, fix-it fairs and things like that. So it's just kind of trying to bring that, bring repair back into our vocabulary so that it's not just, it's definitely a slice of industry and business that we want to support. We want people to be able to make a comfortable living um, in repair repair businesses. Um, But we also want it to be something that individual people think of as an option for, for themselves and for the things that they use too.
1: Yeah. On a related note, our vacuum just broke and I just discovered that like vacuum repair shops actually exist (laughs) because like (laughs) growing up, like my family, like a vacuum breaks and it's just like, whatever, buy a new one. And like, I, the
2: whole
1: vacuum, right? the whole vacuum for goes for, for yeah, for yeah one exactly. broken tube Into yeah. the landfill, like moving on, my, like <laughs> dead to me, like you just said. So anyways, just like on a related note, like to have people just, just immediately going to, I think that's just kind of like our cultural conditioning, just like, okay, buy a brand new thing rather than repairing it, which is like yeah. going to save you money and then be less wasteful. Of course, you know?
0: Yeah. And some of our expensive products, you know, we don't have the right to repair. And that's something actually Marie Glusenkamp-Brez, who we just elected, it's mm-hmm. a big proponent of. So I think that, yeah, that'd be great for our area. Um, in addition to that, and not tossing things because your button popped off, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also, and I think Carissa would agree, we're really excited uh, about these community-owned markets and an urban agriculture uh, that supports our local food software sovereignty and we recycle food Um, we both work with vancouver free fridge where we glean food from natural grocer and mighty bowl and distribute that um, to fridges throughout the community and so we'd love to see and we love loved to see that this was uh, included in the plan and are just wondering if you already have partners or what what is the vision for that kind of stuff look like is there going to be community markets in every one of our neighborhoods where we can buy from local farmers (laughs)
2: but <laughs> well, I think that is, uh, that was definitely the goal that we were charged with. I think our biggest advocates for that um, were from LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens were, um, you know, came out loud and clear in support of local agriculture, making sure that, um, making sure that people, people that live in cities know how to grow food that, you know, if you come from a different cultural background and you can't go to a grocery store and find, you know, the greens that you need to make foods, you know, for, you know, for your family celebrations, for your family meals, you know, they wanted to make sure that people were empowered to grow the foods that were meaningful and important to them and also to not be dependent on food that's getting chucked in from miles and miles and miles away. So it was, um, I would say that wasn't something that I was expecting. I was, you know, I think I was really focused on like the transportation and the buildings. Um, and that was just a beautiful idea that, you know, kind of just came through from the community, community groups and, um, It's gotten more exciting the more we've delved into it. I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of solutions that are kind of floating out there that, you know, we're already familiar with that we want to expand um, for, if we're thinking about, um, if we're thinking about reclaiming restaurant food or food from local markets um, and, you know, kind of neighborhood level organizations like that. There's a couple of companies that operate apps that try to pair neighbors with, restaurants that might have extra food at the end of the day. I think too good to go is um, an example of one of those, but it's just a good way to prevent, perfectly good food from getting thrown into the garbage bin or in the compost bin Um, so kind of encouraging some programs like that i think is something that you know just to encourage them to expand their market into vancouver i think is a really easy win for us we are already talking with the um with our parks department and the community gardens program in particular so i think what what we've heard from them in some early conversations is that um A great model for the city would be to find um, would be to find sponsor organizations that are interested in hosting a community garden, you know, on their property or on property that the city might own. But they would kind of take ownership of the space and help coordinate with a specific community. Um, It's it's really, really effective and powerful when we have. A group to partner with that can just kind of help get the word out that can help, you know, help help connect people to a space like, say, a church group or, you know, like a weekly bowling league or, you know, a neighborhood cultural um, cultural group or, you know, like an art, you know, an art um an art artist space or something like that. So any sort of group that already has a little bit of organization around it that would be interested in kind of being the convener of one of those. You know, the city could as one idea, the city could partner with them and we could help bring in the infrastructure, the supplies, good, you know, quality dirt and compost and some, you know, bring in some education, some, you know, kind of like agricultural educators. And try to, you know, just kind of pair an interested community with, um, with the resources to own their own space. The The more ownership that a community has over the resource, the better that connection to the end product is going to be, um, So I think what we're really looking at is how do we take the resources that the city has and put them more in the hands of the people that are interested in doing this kind of gardening so that, you know, we don't need to be, we don't need to be a middleman for everything. It's, if this is something that the community wants, it gets us closer to our goals, um, you know, where can we bring the resources that we have to the table and, you know, you know, just kind of empower, the people that are, you know, have the passion, have the drive to just kind of take, take the idea and run with it and make it what they want, what their neighborhood wants to see. So we're really excited about that one. Um, we've got a lot of conversations to have around that. Um, but, and I think that's one of, that's probably one of the ones we're most excited about to develop in the new year.
0: Well, if you need any, um, input from some folks who've been doing a lot of cleaning and distributing food. Um, We've got Carissa's info and she's the expert. That's great. (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar at all with the Free Fridge project. We can talk about it after the pod, but it's um, pretty cool anyway that so yeah, we talked about yeah. a little bit
1: <laughs> sorry I feel like I'm in like a happy dream state or something because everything <laughs> you're telling me is like everything I've always ever wanted to hear <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> happening in our community so yeah so
0: just. are there barriers to implementation um we know that this is You just said you started with it. We elected these amazing um, people who agree with this vision for the city. Clearly, we need to keep them in office. Um, Is this a plan that could be derailed if we have people that are elected that aren't supportive? Um, We had a PUD election that didn't go the way we would have preferred. Um, Mm -hmm. How does that impact things? Like where are barriers to implementation?
2: Absolutely. There are barriers. There are barriers to implementation absolutely everywhere. If this was easy, this <laughs> it would already be done. <laughs> um, so some of the, I'd say one of the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to any plan or framework um, like this is always the leadership. And because we live, you know, the city is not a bubble. Vancouver is not, uh, you know, it's not an island unto itself. And Cindy, as you said, like we do, you know, we do share overlapping jurisdictions with Clark County and with public utility districts and with, you know, regional economic um, councils. And so we have a lot of overlapping um, responsibilities. And so having strong climate focused leadership in, you know, in all of these spheres is so important. And I, I really want to thank, I really want to thank you. And I know our local environmental community has was came out very strong um, to, you know, try to make, um, try to make long-term sustainability, a focus of some of our local elections in the last cycle. And I mean, you know, sometimes you you sometimes a cookie doesn't crumble the way you want it to. But <laughs> I do think that you know, being that voice and keeping keeping that as a focus for people in the community, it's it really is, you know, that is one of the hardest things because if the people in charge don't support what you're trying to do, nothing is going to go very far. Other barriers, of course. I mean, we have you know, the obvious one of money. Um, That's, money is a problem for absolutely everything. What we do have a neat opportunity for a lot of sustainability measures is that, you know, we, unlike a lot of things, um, you know, investing in sustainability often means being more efficient and being more conservative and being more resourceful with the, you know, with the infrastructure and the resources that you already have. And so inherently there's, you know, there's some savings or some economies of scale to be realized just through the nature of trying to use less energy to try to conserve water usage, you know, things like that. um, It does kind of put you in a good, good position. Um, It's not to say that there are not costs, but, you know, for example, if you do the long if you do the life cycle math on an electric vehicle, um, which our fleet has done, you often find that over the lifetime of the vehicle, it costs you less because for, you know, for our fleet, they have to do maintenance on every single vehicle that comes into the shop. And a vehicle with an engine, you know, a gas powered engine has a lot more maintenance that's required of it than something that just runs on a battery. You know, so in terms of a life cycle cost analysis on a lot of things we actually save money, but they do require an upfront investment. So that's going to be, that's going to be a big hurdle for us on, you know, just every front, Billy. Really. Um, I think sustaining public support is going to be is going to be hard. And as a city staff person, I can say, you know, this is also where, you know, this is also where my passion lies. I want this to be something that is important to the people in the city, that people see results for what they're, you know, for what they're investing in. But we are talking about a long-term plan and progress can be slow, especially when we're talking about, you know, buildings stand for 50, 100, 150 years. It's, (laughs) you know, things don't just, We don't just, you know, bulldoze things and build better versions of them because we know how to do better today. A lot of the environment that we see around us today, we are, to some extent, we're kind of stuck with the framework that we have. And, you know, we're trying to retrofit and backfill and infill better things, and so, you know, our existing street grid, the way our neighborhoods look now, the way that they've already developed, we're going to be working with that to try to realize a vision that we're trying to get to 20 years from now. So that is, that is not impossible. It's just important to recognize that that is one of our challenges too. So I would say sustained political support. Sustained public support, um, definitely, definitely money, and also just the constraints of constraints of the way of the the bones of our city today, um, and just trying to figure out the best way to build from the environment that we already have.
1: So since you touched on funding, um, how much of the funding mechanism is dependent upon federal funding and or funds from the inflation reduction act? <laughs> well, that has yet to be determined um,
2: we, <laughs> we hope as much as possible can come from the federal from the right. federal funds um, the the grants opportunities the low income um, lending opportunities, the rebates—all of those things can begin in earnest next year. And the programs that we'll be applying to, um, a lot of them haven't even really filled out the full scope of their plans or opened grant applications. So we we have a good idea of what those programs are, but they haven't they haven't opened the floodgates for communities across the country to start applying for that funding. Um, rest assured, Vancouver is well-positioned for this. The fact that we passed the plan before 20, 2022 was over means that we have this framework that is a necessary component to be allowed to apply for these. A lot of these grant opportunities require a city to have an adopted climate um, climate framework or climate plan in place. So um, we have that in hand. We have a grant specialist who's just joined our team, who's going to tr- really try to help us target the sources that are the most likely for us um, to be successful at. And she's going to be helping us you know, with those applications. And we've already had really good conversations with our partners in the community. Clark PUD is um, going to be a strong supporter for us on some of our applications, we're excited about working with them. We're excited to be working with the port. So the more partnerships that we build up, um, and the more you know ready to pounce we are, the better, the better chance we have of bringing in as much federal funding as we can. Sure. Okay. I don't yeah. think that uh, I don't think that outside funding should be our only. Source of of supporting things that are good for our communities across the board, not just for climate goals, but you know, for our air quality, for our ability to get around easily, for our ability to live in a clean building that you know isn't going to be um, you know that's going to protect us when we have horrible air quality days. I mean, there's just a there's so many reasons that we should invest our should invest local funds into building our local community too though. So I don't want us to be, I don't want us to feel like we need to only rely on grants and um, you know, one-off opportunities. I think this is something that we should be investing in long term um, to support, to support the community that we want to live in.
0: Great. So the federal funding explains some of the means testing in the the programs for homeowners, I assume. Uh, I'm sorry, could you say it again? I just just had a question that I was going to ask you, but I think you kind of just answered it in that some of the programs for homeowners, such as like um, EV chargers and electrification and things, uh, electrified uh, heat pumps, things like that were means tested. Is that mostly because of federal funding or? Um, There's the...
2: The programs have not been entirely ironed out for those. Um, okay. So, I mean, I think as a just an example, we're trading in our gas furnace for a heat pump in our house. We just got an email from the contractor um, to you know tell us that oh, we thought we we thought we knew what was going to happen with the federal rebates, but actually we don't. We can't guarantee that the you know the system that you've applied for is. Going to be eligible for a rebate. So it's not that they're not going to work out the details, um, but it's just that they tried to pass a lot very quickly and we still have a lot of work to iron out um, what specifically, um, what specific benefits are going to be available for homeowners.
0: That makes sense. And then the other big thing you mentioned was that we need to maintain public support. Is there any kind of marketing plan to let people know what this plan entails, even somebody like me who wanted to find the plan and had kind of a hard time on the city website finding it. <laughs> there, a marketing budget. The Colombian doesn't seem to be super into um, promoting it. So, is there anything other than us using our minimal social media reach? <laughs> can help? Well, I think <laughs>
2: how can we help? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, I I mean, I would first say that I appreciate so much the work that you do to communicate this and help get the word out to people that are interested. I there's really there's no there's no substitute for grassroots word of mouth communication. Um, If you think about the number of people that probably follow the two of you on social media versus the number of people that excitedly follow you know, the city's social media accounts, you know, it's just <laughs> not not as many people <laughs> jump at the chance to, you know, just be like, what is the city up to right now? I can't wait to know. <laughs> people are more interested in what their friends and family are doing and talking about. So peer-to-peer networks, we have such a brilliant communications team. I can't, I can't say enough good things about them, but there is no comparison to the kind of work that you do in your in your own city. So thank you for that. It is my job going forward to try to make your job easier. Um, now that the plan, now that the framework is adopted, um, we can actually sp- focus our time on <laughs> doing something besides writing the framework. So that does mean that we have a lot more time on our hands now to work on just kind of consistent Communication through um, through a couple of different means. Um, we're definitely going to be. We have an, an email list that you can sign up for on the website. Um, if there's any way I can get the website to you, um, I'd be happy to do that so that people know where to go um, to find that. But there's an email list. Um, I will be sending regular updates through that on what the city is working on. We are going to be. Um, updating the new website regularly. That's something we just got our website. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and I'll tell you one effort that I just got a head nod from my boss about on um, a couple of days ago. So as an experiment this year, we're going to be hosting a series of climate pubs. Um, we're going to have, uh, we're going to kind of do like a two-part presentation for anybody that's interested in the community um, to come attend. I'll start with just giving a, you know, kind of a rundown. This is what we're working on. This is what we have been focusing our time on. This is, you know, these are grants we've applied for. These are projects that we're working on. These are some cool efforts that some of our partner jurisdictions are doing, like, this is what the Port of Vancouver is working on. And, you know, like, this is what CARD PUD is do- doing this week. And then we'll have somebody in in the city that is working on a project that we want everyone to know about. Could be somebody from the city, could be, you know, somebody from one of our partner agencies, but who's doing something awesome for climate that we want everyone to know about? So, a little wonky, um, there will be PowerPoint presentations involved, but uh, we will be looking to hold these um, out at venues in the city that are hopefully places you would want to go anyways. Um, places where you can get get some food, get some drinks, um, come with your friends, come with your kids, and you know, just kind of hang out with us for a night, we'll talk for a little while, um, and then you can get back to, you know, having the conversations that you want to have and then city staff and agency staff will be around to, you know, just kind of to chat, catch up, hear what you want us to hear. And um, we're just going to try that out as a <laughs> as an experiment this year to see if that is a good way of getting out to the community a little bit more and making sure we have in-person opportunities to connect with people on climate who might be interested in hearing what we're doing.
0: I love it. And I yeah, that's a brilliant recorded. idea. Yeah, I, I
2: will okay, blatantly the... stole this idea from um, there's something called science pub across the river.
1: Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, a friend of a girlfriend of mine once did a project that she called summer of science. And once a month, She would just pick somebody's backyard and somebody would just give a PowerPoint presentation on something they thought was cool. Not a scientist, just anybody. Just tell us what you're doing that you think is neat and science related. And people would come with picnic blankets and make picnics. And we would listen to a PowerPoint presentation from one of our friends about something they knew a lot about. And it was a lot more fun than watching the same thing on YouTube or something you know
0: yeah. <laughs> honestly that addresses something we're missing now culturally this idea of third spaces where you have home and you mm. have work and then we're missing third spaces that used to be your religious institution or yeah your, you know, whatever clubs yeah. we're missing that and I think if we can come together more in our community highlight great places and share some geeky knowledge I love it it's awesome I can't wait to attend any yeah course yeah we'll put all your links in the show notes. Um, We have a question from a listener and then I think if there's nothing I'm missing, Carissa, we could wrap with um, just how we can continue to stay involved other than join the email list. Do you want to go ahead with our listener question?
1: Yeah, that sounds good to me. I know we've touched a little bit on some of this stuff, but um, I'll just ask the question um, in full here. So Uh, In implementation of the plan, how will we manage street equity in terms of equitable travel times and make sure it's safe for all modes of transportation, especially low-income modes of travel, or sorry, yes, sorry, especially low-income modes of travel, such as bikes, scooters, et cetera. Um, Around the city, we're seeing the Vine take priority over bike lanes. Will that continue, or can bikers expect to see an expansion in bike lanes for a more completed network? That question's from one of our micro-mobility advocate uh, listeners?
2: Oh, it's a great question. And I want to thank that person for being so specific, too, because that's a good opportunity for us to address, I think, some concerns that we have heard from the community in a couple of different formats. So um, just to address the specific question about the Vine, um, I talked earlier about one of our one of our barriers being the constraints of the environment that we already have. And so something that we have, something that we do have a hard time um, trying to do, I think it's not unique to Vancouver, but it is hard to put every mode of transportation into the same corridor and provide a high quality experience for everyone. We're trying to prioritize bikes, um, micromobility and transit on some of those major corridors. By some of the federal regulations on the funding that supports the Vine, um, we have to configure the sidewalks and the bus lane in a specific way Um, in order to maintain funding. And that's such a wonky and unsatisfying explanation, but we have a federal restriction in how the layout of the road needs to be for the bus. And so for that, we're trying to comfortably um, integrate our bike micro-mobility and sidewalk functions um, into that same space so that we're supporting the bus mode but also keeping our other modes safe and comfortable. And I'll say you have one of the one of the biggest um, one of the biggest cycling advocates that I know is on the team that's trying to figure this out. So I wouldn't. I would hope that listeners could um, entertain the idea that the people that are working on this are also passionate transportation advocates. They're you know, they're doing this work because, you know, they're lifetime cyclists, they're bike commuters, they're, you know, (laughs) they're scooter share, um, scooter share heads as well. And so we have some constraints that we're trying very hard to figure out, but the goal is to not prioritize transit over any of the, you know, over bikes or scooters or, you know, skateboards or anything like that. We're trying to find the best configuration that we can, for both of them, given a couple of constraints that are somewhat unavoidable. Um, That said, the new transportation system plan and the new comprehensive plan, the goals of those are to really work on building out our non-car networks. We've invested so much into our car infrastructure, um, (laughs) really just, you know, uh, seventy five years of infrastructure all for all to move cars around around our cities our new planning direction is really heavily focused on trying to identify good routes for people walking and rolling and for people um, for people that might be biking using micromobility devices to get around so I think something that Um, Something that I'm excited about that that team came up with um, is the, the concept of a climate corridor. So this would be an interconnected network of streets around the city where we would prioritize planting large canopy trees, like kind of big form trees, not just like decorative cherry trees, but, you know, the kind of trees that would grow tall and create good shade. Um, so, we want to prioritize that kind of tree planting along these corridors so that people, you know, so that if somebody is biking in the summertime, they're cool and sheltered and comfortable. We want to put more green infrastructure on these corridors so that these are beautiful places for people to ride. And, you know, the intent being that, you know, we can put some of this carbon sequestering green infrastructure along a corridor. Um, but that it will also be a very attractive network for people that are choosing to not drive, they're choosing a more climate-friendly way to get around. That so we're creating a pleasant and comfortable and beautiful and safe network for people, to, for people to make that choice and hopefully encourage more people to make that choice.
1: Very good. Thank you for answering that. I think we always just like to end on
0: an action item, something a listener can do. And so what is the number one thing, in addition to jumping on your email list and staying involved that way, we'll obviously stay on top of listeners to reach out when city council needs support for a part of this plan or is receiving pushback on a part of this plan to voice our support. Mm -hmm. But is there anything else they can do, like... And to send you a box of cookies, like something to thank you for your hard work? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the, the city has
2: done all the hard work. The people that live here <laughs> have done the hard work. So um, I just got lucky to come here in time to run the baton across the finish line. So um, they, they should bake themselves some cookies and give themselves <laughs> a high five. I think that's a great start. Um something I would encourage people to do is if they're passionate about this work and they want to be you know if they like um, if they like working in a political space if they like that there are there are committees and commissions for almost every topic you can imagine if you're interested in urban tree canopy and urban forestry there's a city commission for that if you're interested in transportation if you're interested in micro mobility issues there's a transportation commission. Um, and so these are the groups that help um, give policy direction to city staff and to city council. City council almost, you know, is generally very supportive of the recommendations that come from those commissions because they're made up of residents of the city. So if people are passionate about an issue, um, I would encourage them to look and see if there is a committee Um, that deals with that issue and apply. There's um, there's often open positions. um, And if there isn't, all of these groups have an opportunity for public testimony too. So this is just a great way of just, you know, if you have a message that you feel isn't being heard, or if you appreciate something that, you know, that the city or the county or whoever is doing, and you want them to do more of it, these are really good opportunities to Um, you know, sometimes you feel like you get a little drowned out in a city council meeting, um, or, you know, it's, it's just a little too much pressure. These are smaller groups. They're a lot more approachable and because they're smaller, you have a great opportunity to make a bigger impact. So that would be one thing I would recommend. Um, and then maybe something that could be, um, could be kind of fun, um, look for, you know, it's a funny question, right? Because I don't, <laughs> when people ask, what can I do for climate change? You don't want to do that, you know, that BP move where, you know, like, they're like, here are 10 things you can do to reduce your climate.
1: Footprint. Right. <laughs> the burden is on you.
2: <laughs> Have you turned your thermostat down? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> the, the best things that we can do are to, you know, support the big systems that you know the systems and the policies that you know guide behavior for you know the biggest players in the game so the community support that people have showed already for putting uh, the leadership in, in place that they have you know just always remember that that counts for so much and that your voice is so powerful that that is what made this framework possible Um, It's going to be what makes the implementation of it possible in the future. Um, So just don't don't underestimate how impactful their voices really are. And when they talk to their family or their friends and just kind of share casually that, you know, oh, this is something I'm interested in. Or, you know, like I wrote to my city councilor about this. Those little points of communication really matter. So don't be shy about telling the people around you what you're passionate about um and come join us on a commission we would love to have you
0: very cool excellent thank you so much rebecca we really appreciate your time today
2: yeah thank you i i can't believe that the city of vancouver has its own dedicated climate podcast i was over the moon when I found this, when I found this out, I feel like it was one of those things where you're just like, I am really working in the right city. This is the city that's going (laughs) for it. So (laughs) thank you for doing what you do and for, for being here for Vancouver.